Well, good morning. Thanks so much for having us here. It's great to worship with you, and uh, we're, we're just so grateful for the ongoing relationship with your church, and uh, it's been good to reconnect with some of you that we haven't seen since we were here last year. As Chris said, um, we were just so thankful and so encouraged by uh, this church's support of our uh, short-term trip to Liberia this summer. Liberia is a small country in West Africa, right on the coast. It, uh, they are, they're native English speakers, and it's a very poor country. It's a very challenging country. It's a country that uh, experienced uh, in the 90s about 14 years of devastating civil war that just wrecked their economy and wrecked their education system, and it is a, it is a challenging place to do ministry and to live. But there's a new mission seminary there, and uh, uh, I've been teaching, I've taught a number of uh, Old Testament courses for them, and they asked me to come back this summer and teach Hebrew and uh, interpretation of the Bible. We talked a lot about preaching and church ministry, and uh, so we were there for about five weeks. It was, a, it was a wonderful experience. I brought 10 photos to show you really quick. Uh, it was great to be there with my wife and my uh, two daughters. Uh, it, we all... We all kind of embrace the adventure together. It's, it, 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 it's kind of challenging. This is kind of half of our weekly grocery shopping. My wife here is buying some vegetables and fruit from this uh, guy that would bring him around to the door. Uh, we lived on a, on a missionary compound, and there's my wife and two daughters walking. And we, we just loved uh, being with the missionaries there and building relationships with them. Um, like I said, the, my, my primary uh, role there was to teach at the Evangelical Seminary of West Africa. Uh, it's been in existence, I think, about three years, and uh, most of the students there are full-time pastors uh, who are there to get uh, more, uh, more training. <clears throat> uh, here's the building. They have three classrooms and some offices in there, and here's uh, a shot of one of my one of my classes, and then uh, here, uh, I'm kind of awkwardly standing in the back there, but anyway, uh, they're, they're kind of celebrating these books that they had uh, got. I was really focused on giving them tools for, uh, you know, really a good interpretation of the Bible and giving them, giving them some methods. Um, I also did some other ministry at the seminary there. Uh, here I'm doing an all, kind of an all-day seminar on preaching the Old Testament. It was attended by about 35 pastors and church leaders and prospective students. I also taught Bible studies on the radio and helped with some administrative stuff. Um, almost every week I preached in a Liberian church. This is the first evangelical free church of West Africa. So this is kind of our sister church, right? I go to, to an evangelical free church. This is an evangelical free church. And here's the first evangelical free church of West Africa. So it's so, it's so encouraging, and I was so glad that my daughters could experience, you know, going kind of the other side of the world and being with fellow Christians who are worshiping the same God and reading from the same scripture, and uh, it's just always en encouraging to be with um, people of God from other parts of the world. This is the pastor of that church, James McCarthy, who is the REACH Global representative in West Africa. REACH Global is the international missions arm of the Evangelical Free Church, so it was really need to meet him and talk to him. We also did ministry on the compound, you know, just uh, whatever we were asked to do with the missionaries there. Here I'm preaching at a Sunday evening service for the missionaries. 
And uh, my wife and daughters did hospitality, and they helped uh, come up with activities for the missionary kids, and they worked in the library and all kinds of things. So it was a wonderful trip, and uh, we're, we're just grateful for the, uh, for the opportunity to go and thankful for your enabling us to do that. Unfortunately, on the way home, I picked up COVID for the third time, and that was about two and a half weeks ago, and I'm still kind of coughing. So this morning, I am heavily medicated, and uh, we'll see. Hopefully, I won't cough during this, but um, anyway, we're uh, improving, I guess, day by day. I greet you on behalf of Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. I'm really honored to be a professor there. There's some exciting things happening there. We start, uh, we start the fall semester in about a week and a half, so it's hard to believe that the summer is already coming to a close. Our message today is from 1 Kings 19, 1 through 18. It was already read, and if you, but I, I encourage you to turn there in your Bible or on your smartphone or whatever uh, so that you can follow along. <clears throat> the title is The Antidote for Despair. What is despair? Despair is the total and complete loss of hope. We despair when we lose all hope and we just feel like giving up. Maybe you haven't experienced total despair, but there's another kind. There's kind of a lower level despair, which is when we're just in a constant state of discouragement. We constantly feel tired and defeated and we look at our lives and our ministries and the world around us, and we just feel totally exhausted and beaten and hopeless, or maybe we feel like failures, and we just feel like we can't make any progress, or maybe God is asking too much. And, and, and maybe it's not a catastrophic despair, but maybe it's a chronic despair. You know, it just kind of nags at us. It's like, it, it's, a, it's like an injury that doesn't heal, or a pain that's with us every day. It's like Every day, it just kind of troubles us and nags us, discouragement, a lack of hope, despair. I remember one time when I despaired, I had been in graduate school for years and years full-time, and we had not had a lot of money, and I didn't know what the future held, and I didn't know what God had for me on the other, on the other side of all of these years of education and training. And it was late winter, and I was about to graduate, and I, I just did not know what the future held. I had, I had sent out 13 letters to different schools for a teaching job. I was looking for a job, and I was pretty stressed. Because, to be honest, some of those schools that I had sent letters to, I knew weren't a great fit, but I was feeling a little bit desperate. I didn't know how I was going to provide for the family and where we would go. And, you know, I listed my qualifications in these letters and hoped that someone would hire me. And one by one, as the days and weeks spent while I was getting these letters back in the mail, no, no, sorry, you're not a good fit for us, no, one, two, three, seven, nine, twelve. And finally, on the last day, I went out to the mail and I got the letter and it was a 13th letter and I opened it up, no. And that evening, when I received my 13th rejection letter, I was helping my wife uh, give a bath to our three-year-old daughter. We were in this little bathroom, and I was kneeling there by the tub. I had my sleeves rolled up, and my arms were in the water. And I remember very clearly I was despairing. 
And I was complaining to my wife. I was so negative. I was so gloom and doom. It's all been a waste, right? All, this, all these years of training, it's all been a waste. What's God going to do? I can't get a job. Where, where are we going to live? I'm going to have to find some other job somewhere that doesn't require any kind of training because this is the only thing I can do, and yet I don't have a job to do it in. How are we going to pay our bills? You know, why am I such a, you know, such a failure and everything? And so I'm just complaining and complaining to my wife. And all of a sudden, I hear this little voice out of the bathtub. It's my three-year-old daughter, and she says, don't worry, Daddy, Jesus will give you a job. And I was, oh, man, I felt so dumb. I felt so embarrassed. You know, here was this little girl who was listening to all of my griping and complaining and despairing. And it turned out her view of God was bigger than mine. After all of my years of theological education, she didn't know anything about qualifications or market trends or theological fit or what part of the country we could, you know, I could work at a seminary. She didn't know anything about any of that. She just knew that God was big and he could do anything he wanted and he could give me a job. This is the antidote to despair, actually. And it's the subject of our story in 1 Kings 19. So, but before we look at this particular story that's just been read, we need to go back and look a little bit about the, uh, the background here, a little bit of context about what's leading into this story. The people of Israel are worshiping Baal. Baal was a fertility god of the Canaanites who was supposed to control the weather and make it rain, and he was the one who made your crops grow and your animals fertile so that you would become wealthy and everything. And, and this worship of Baal and the worship of Yahweh be, was, a, was a great conflict in the northern kingdom of Israel. In chapter 17, God sent Elijah the prophet to declare a famine that there would be no food. And of course, this was a direct attack on Baal, the fertility god. And then in chapter 18, the evil queen Jezebel in the northern kingdom of Israel was systematically going around and murdering the true prophets of the Lord. But a faithful man named Obadiah hid 100 true prophets of the Lord in caves in order to save their lives. And finally, it all comes to a head and it leads to this great confrontation on Mount Carmel. You remember this story. There's Elijah on one side and 850 prophets of Baal and other gods like Asherah on the other side. And they have this great big contest and Elijah prays and God sends fire that comes down out of heaven and it burns up Elijah's sacrifice and it proves that God is the true God. And Elijah orders that the false prophets be killed and the people are amazed, and it's a great conflict. It's, it's truth versus falsehood. It's good versus evil. It's a life or death situation. And that brings us directly into our story here in 1 Kings 19. This story takes place in four scenes. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at each scene, and then we'll talk about the overall message of the story and what it teaches us today. Scene one is verses one through three. Elijah flees for his life. In verse 1, the story begins when Ahab goes home and he tells his wife, the evil queen Jezebel, what had happened. He tells, him about the, tells her about the contest on Mount Carmel and how it had ended with Elijah killing the false prophets who worked for her. In Hebrew, there are three occurrences of the word all in verse 1. He told her all that Elijah had done, all how he had killed the prophets, all the prophets. 
Right? So, so she's getting the full story here about what had happened. And when Jezebel hears, she is unhappy. And she sends a message to Elijah threatening him with death. And she swears a serious vow. She says in verse 2, May the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life like the life of one of them. In other words, you killed them and took their life, so I'm going to take your life. You're dead. You're a dead man. And she doesn't say what, what curses she's heaping down on herself, but she says, May the gods do terrible things to me and may they add to it if I do not carry out my threat against you. You're dead. And so Elijah is afraid, naturally, and he runs for his life, right? She said that she was going to take his life, and now he runs for his life. He runs from Jezebel up in the northern kingdom, all the way down into the southern kingdom, all the way south to a city called Beersheba. It's about 100 miles. He's probably on foot. It's about five days of walking, and he gets all the way to Beersheba. He's in a different country now. He's safe. He leaves his servant there. Everything's fine. The threat is gone. And, 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 and everything must be okay. But then there, there, there's something else going on. He has something else in mind. And that brings us to scene two. Scene two is in verses four through eight. Elijah is exhausted and despairs. It was safe in Beersheba. He leaves his servant there, but then he's thinking something else because he continues to travel further south into the desert. And in verse 4, he travels for a day, and then he collapses under this shrub, and he falls into total despair. It says in verse 4, he asked that he might die. And then Elijah says to the Lord, it is enough Now, O Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. He is totally despairing. He's he's at the end. He's at the end of his rope. There's nothing left for him to give. But we need to notice three things here in what he says. First of all, notice he says in verse 4, it is enough. He is tired. He is exhausted. He has been working for God and speaking God's word and leading God's people and having contests with, God's, with false prophets and killing false prophets. And now he is out of gas. He is tired. It's too much. Right? Maybe God's expectations are just too high for him. And second... He says, take my life. This is the fifth time we get this word life in the last couple of verses. Jezebel says to him, I'm going to take your life. And then Elijah runs for his life. And now he says to God, I'm done. Take my life. That's odd. The whole reason he ran away was to save his life. And now he says to God, okay, just kill me. Why? If he's running away from Jezebel and trying to stay alive, why is he now asking God to kill him? It's because he is in total despair. He's lost all hope. Just kill me, right? My life is not worth living anymore. Enough is enough. I'm not even any better than my enemies. What is the point of being a faithful and true prophet of the Lord when everything just keeps going off the rails and nothing turns out right anyway? 
So he's exhausted and he feels hopeless and he just goes to sleep under that shrub. But God is watching. And first he takes care of Elijah's physical needs. In verses 5 through 8, an angel comes and he gives Elijah food and water and Elijah goes back to sleep and then he wakes up and the angel comes a second time and gives him more food. And then the angel says to him, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. In Hebrew, it is the same word that is translated enough and too great. It's like the angel says to him, it is enough. It is too great for you. You're tired. And so with that food, Elijah continues heading south for 40 days and 40 nights until he comes to Horeb, the mountain. Now, we know that mountain by a different name usually, Mount Sinai. And that, that gets our attention. This is incredibly crucial, right? This is an incredibly significant location in the Old Testament. This is where the people of Israel went when they came out of slavery in Egypt. God took them to Mount Sinai, and Moses went up on the mountain, and there was fire and thunder, and he gave, them the, he gave Moses the Ten Commandments and gave them the covenant and formed them into his special people. And, and in fact, because God's presence was there on the mountain, some people got too close, and God struck them down because of God's holiness. It was this incredibly significant location. And now here he is, back at Mount Sinai. He has traveled 200 miles more from Beersheba, all the way down through the wilderness to Mount Sinai, all the way back to when God first made his relationship with Israel and taught them to be faithful. What is Elijah thinking here? That is a long way. Well, it's not totally clear, but I wonder if he's looking for a reboot. Maybe he's thinking, you know, Israel is a massive failure. It's not working out. So maybe we should just go all the way back to the beginning. Maybe, you know, maybe we should just go back to Sinai and start over again. Maybe it would be like you and me looking out at the church in America and saying, boy, this is not working. Let's just buy a ticket and get on a plane and fly over to Jerusalem and let's just redo Pentecost. You know, let's just have God restart the church and reboot it because this is not working. Maybe it's something like that. He, he's quitting He's checking out. He's back at Sinai again. And we know that he's despairing because he's left his mission field in the northern kingdom of Israel. And he's all the way back at Sinai. Scene three, here's our third part of the story. In verses 9 through 14 is when Elijah finally explains the reasons for his despair. At Mount Horeb, which is Mount Sinai, he sleeps in a cave and it says in verse 9 that the word of the Lord came to him. Now, this is the typical way that a prophet receives the word of the Lord and then preaches it to other people. But in this case, the word of the Lord is for Elijah himself. And God says to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? I sent you to be a prophet in Israel. What are you doing back here at Mount Sinai? You know, maybe it's like this. Maybe... Maybe it's time for your daughter to go off to college. Maybe she's going to college in another state like Minnesota or something. And so, you know, you buy things for her dorm room, the laundry basket and some posters or whatever, and you help her register for classes, and then you drive her all the way to school. You get her settled in her dorm, and you say goodbye, and then you, you know, cry all the way home, you know, because these are hard 
transitions. And then, and then about a week later, you're, at, you're coming home from the grocery store, and you pull into your driveway, and there she is on the front porch with all of her stuff. And you're, what are you doing here? What great catastrophe, what great problem brought you back from college after, after we sent you there, right? And that's what God asks Elijah, what are you doing here at Mount Sinai? And then Elijah explains the reasons for his despair in verse 10. He says, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant and thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left. And they are also seeking my life to take it away. The people of Israel are rebelling against you, God. They are, they are breaking your covenant. They're persecuting your prophets. And I'm the only one left. Well, on the one hand, that makes good sense, right? That, that sounds like a reason to be discouraged. That is very bad news. But there are a, a few things here in what Elijah says that are a little off. Because first of all, remember back in verse 4, Elijah has already said that he is so hopeless that he asked God to kill him. So we know that his perspective is a little off here. But second, he says in verse 10, I have been very jealous for the Lord. It's all about him, right? He's making it all about him. He's kind of at the center of this story here. And then he says, I am totally alone. I am the only faithful prophet left in the northern kingdom. But, but we know that's not true because it told us in the previous passage that Obadiah had hid 100 faithful prophets in caves and saved their life. And we know it, and Elijah knows it too. So Elijah is despairing. He feels like he is the only one left. He alone is standing up for God. He alone is all that stands between a faithful Israel and the worship of Baal. He alone is staying true to God as the country just falls to pieces around him. Now, I want to be careful here and not be too hard on him because I haven't walked in his shoes and uh, I'm not saying he's arrogant, but his perspective is wrong. He is taking too much responsibility here. He, he views himself as the center of the situation. He is the last line of defense. It's all up to him. So no wonder he's so exhausted. And the Lord doesn't respond right away, but he tells Elijah to, to stand on the mountain before the Lord and there's going to be a little demonstration. And so first there's this terrific howling wind that comes through and breaks the rocks and God is not in the wind and then there's an earthquake that shakes the whole mountain and God's not in the earthquake and then there's a roaring fire that bursts out and God is not in the fire and after the fire the sound of a small whisper and Elijah knows that God is in that quiet voice because in verse 13, he covers his face. He knows that he is in the presence of a holy God. And God says to him again, what are you doing here, Elijah? See, that is exactly the same question that God asked back in verse 9. Verse 9 and verse 13. 
And then Elijah responds, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. That is exactly what he had said in verse 10. So we have 9 and 13 and 10 and 14. It's an exact repetition. Why did God ask the same question twice and why did Elijah answer in exactly the same way? Well, well, think about the way that this is presented here. In verses 9 and 10, God asks Elijah why he is despairing and Elijah talks about himself. And then in verses 13 and 14, God asks Elijah why he's despairing and Elijah talks about himself. And then in the middle, we have a very unusual revelation of God in a quiet, still voice. Elijah is at Mount Sinai. And he is clearly being compared to Moses here. Moses was on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights, and Elijah traveled 40 days and 40 nights to get there. Moses had no food on the mountain. Elijah had no food on his journey. Moses stands while the Lord passes by. Elijah is told to stand while the Lord passes by. Moses is covered by God's hand. Elijah covers his face with a cloak. But, so there's a lot of similarities, but there is a key difference. When God appeared to Moses on Mount Sinai, it was with fire and thunder and power and, and smoke and darkness. But when God appears to Elijah, he was not in the wind. He was not in the earthquake. He was not in the fire. He was in a quiet voice. That's, that's odd. Usually when God shows up, people fall on their face. I think that the Lord is saying to Elijah, this is how you see me. This is, this is why you're despairing. Because your view of me is too small. You don't view me as the mighty God on Mount Sinai. You view me as a little whisper. Finally, we come to the end of the story in, verse, in, in scene 4, in verses 15 to 18, when the Lord responds. In Elijah's despair, he has complained to the Lord about two things. One, that Israel is rebelling against God, and two, that Elijah is totally and completely alone. So now, in this last scene, the Lord is going to speak to him about both of these problems. First, in verses 15 and 16, he tells Elijah to anoint three people. He wants Elijah to go all the way up, past Judah, past the northern kingdom of Israel, all the way up to Syria, and it's a foreign country, and he wants Elijah to anoint Hazael as king. Then he wants Elijah to go to Israel and anoint Jehu as king. And then he wants Elijah to anoint Elisha to replace him as prophet. It's a lot of names. It's a lot of geography. But here's what it means. God is going to take care of these problems. God is going to take care of these problems. He's going to punish Israel. And he's going to teach his people. He's got everything under control but he's going to do it with others, not Elijah. In fact, he's going to do it after Elijah is dead. So these aren't Elijah's problems. 
They're God's problems. He is God. Israel is his people. Elijah doesn't need to put all of this burden and pressure on himself because, in fact, God is going to deal with these situations after Elijah is already gone. And then, in verse 18, the last verse in the story, it ends when God responds to Elijah's second concern. He says to Elijah, you're wrong, actually. I will leave 7,000 people in Israel who have not bowed and worshipped Baal. My victory on Baal, my victory against Baal does not depend on you. You're not the only one who is standing firm in true faith against idolatry. Now, this is a, it's a somewhat lengthy story and there's a lot going on here. But if, if we summarize everything, here I think is how we can state the main message that this story is teaching us. Here it is. We despair when our view of God is too small. When we have too low of a view of God or too high a view of something else, it leads us to despair. We despair when our view of God is too small. So let's take it just a few minutes and, and look at how this applies. I'm, I'm going to talk about three quick points of application here. First of all, we need to recognize that despair is a sin. I say this as someone who has a particular weakness for this sin. I already, I already told you about despairing over my job prospects. I, I have always been tempted to despair. It's like a glitch in my personality or something. But, but I recognize, and I've thought about this a lot over the years, I recognize that despair is a great sin against God. I'm not talking about discouragement. We all get discouraged. We, we, all, get, we all get disappointed by the hardship and the challenges that life brings. I'm talking about despair. Elijah came to the point when he asked God to end his life. And he lost hope to the point that he complained that he was completely alone, even though he knew, and we know, that there were 100 other true prophets who had been rescued. And God said to Elijah, what are you doing here? Why are you in this emotional state? Why are you responding in this way to these great victories that you had had? See, sometimes... Despair is a catastrophic loss of hope, like Elijah when he's like, you might as well just kill me because my life isn't worth living. But, but as I mentioned before, sometimes despair just be kind of becomes the norm. It's the chronic norm of gloom and discouragement that we face every single day. We are, we are in a constant state of defeat, right? We despair over our children. We despair over our financial situation. We despair over the problems in our marriage. We despair over the state of the church in America. We despair, despair over culture. We despair over U.S. politics. And, and day after day, you know, we, we watch uh, cable news and we get all worked up and we bite our fingernails and we despair and we lose all hope and we adopt a permanent state of gloom. And here's what we're saying to God when we do that. You must not be paying attention. 
you, you're failing in your role as God, right? You, you obviously aren't up to the task here. If you, if you were aware, God, of the problems that I see on the news, I think you, you could maybe step it up a little bit here. I'm doing what I can. I'm trying to help. I'm waging war on Facebook and Twitter and trying to put those people in their place for the way that they vote or whatever. I'm doing what I can here, but it's exhausting and tiring, and I wish you would just kind of step up. I'm building a dollhouse with my daughter right now. It's one of those really complicated dollhouses. Uh, you know, like you get a Hobby Lobby, I think, and it's got a million pieces and an incredibly complicated instruction manual. In fact, when I first opened that instruction manual, I was ready to despair again. I mean, it was intense. And I thought, how are we ever going to get this done? There are so many little pieces and everything. Taping the joints and gluing everything in just the right order. And so on this job, as I work with my daughter, I'm kind of the foreman of the job. It's, it's, I've, I, I'll, I'll be the dad. I'll look at the instruction manual and help everyone know where everything goes. How do you think I would feel if some Saturday afternoon we're working on it, and all of a sudden my daughter just throws herself on the floor and bursts out crying and says, it's hopeless, we'll never get this done. This is impossible, we never should have started this project in the first place. Well, that wouldn't make me feel very good. Because I'm the foreman, right? She, she's not, she hasn't lost confidence in herself, she's lost confidence in me. I'm the one that's taken responsibility for seeing this job through. And see, despair is not just an emotional state. It's not just a weak moment. It's a sin. And it's something that we need to repent of. And like any sin, God will be gracious to us through Jesus Christ. Number two, we despair when we take responsibility that isn't ours. Despair is a sin against God because it's a theological problem. We despair when our view of God is too small. And usually that's because we have put something else in his place. We have put our confidence and trust in something else. What had Elijah elevated his confidence in other than God? Himself. He had worked and worked and worked for God. He had announced a famine and been fed by ravens and been fed miraculously by a widow. He had confronted the king of Israel. He had confronted the false prophets on Mount Carmel. And he says to God, I have been very jealous for you. I am the only one left, the only one. I'm all that stands between truth and orthodoxy. Everyone else is wicked. And everyone else is unfaithful to me, to, to you, and evidently it's up to me to fix this mess. Well, no wonder he's so tired he's sleeping under that shrub. It is exhausting to try and take on that much responsibility. But here's the thing. It's not his responsibility. God says at the end of the chapter, actually, you're not the only one. There are not only 100 true prophets who have been saved in caves. There are 7,000 people in this country who have not bowed and worshipped Baal. And I'm going to solve these problems, Elijah. I'll do it in my own time. I'll do it after your lifetime. And not only are you not responsible, it's completely out of your hands. 
Elijah had seen and participated in God's amazing miracles and power. But that did not prevent him from getting mixed up. Those amazing acts of God's power that he had seen and participated in and even led did not prevent him from taking too much responsibility on himself that wasn't his and failing to recognize that that was God's job. We've already been having like a group confession time here, so let me just say one more. I, I am tempted to despair about ministry in the state of the church. My job is a seminary professor, and I am tempted to despair about that. Why is the church struggling so much? How, how is the seminary supposed to serve the church? Maybe I'm not doing enough, right? Maybe I haven't met the right people or networked in the right way or raised the, the right amount of money. Maybe the cultural challenges in the U.S. are just too difficult It's all up to me. It's all up to church leaders. It's all up to seminary professors. It's my training. It's my skill. It's my effort. I'm the only one, evidently, that stands between a flourishing church and a dead church. But see, when I think that way and talk that way, when I'm tempted to go there, is there anything left for God to do? Have I left anything for him to do in all of this? And listen to what the Bible says here. Listen to just a collection of verses that I found. Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. He who began a good work in you will carry it to completion. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. God says, I will build my church. Some of us are tempted to despair about the problems in U.S. culture and politics. We haven't elected the right political leaders. We haven't elected the right senators or the right president. Our political leaders have the wrong priorities. There are lobbyists and donors that have too much influence. Evangelical Christians are not being salt and light because they're too liberal or or whatever. It's all up to us. If we all were more involved in U.S. politics, we would fix it, right? But listen to what the Bible says. God changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he wants. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities because there is no authority except what has been established by God. Pray for your leaders that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Despair comes from having too high a view of human responsibility and too low a view of God's power and authority. So, number three, then, our last point. What, then, is the antidote to despair? This is the question that we posed at the beginning. What is the antidote to despairing? Give up? Check out? Pretend the problems don't exist? Just become lazy? Quit caring? 
No, think about how God responded to Elijah. When Elijah despaired, God helps him in two ways. He reveals himself to Elijah and he takes back the responsibility that Elijah had put on himself. Number one, antidote number one. It's like a, it's like a prescription from Walgreens. Here you go. Antidote number one for, for despair. We need to have a bigger view of God. We need to read the scripture and learn that God is powerful and present and great and good and wise and he knows what's going on and he's, he, he, he knows the end from the beginning. We need to know him as he truly is, that those great big shoulders of God can carry that weight. He can handle it. Those are his problems. He knows what to do. He is completely wise. He is bringing all things to completion in the end, and someday he will set everything right. He will save his people. He will defeat his enemies, and we will live with him in peace forever. That's antidote number one. Here's antidote number two. We need to give responsibility back to God. For whatever worries us, for whatever task seems too big for us, for whatever seems to be going off the rails or going sideways, we need to give it back to God over and over and over again. Every time we're tempted and pray to him and said, Lord, I leave this with you. You do whatever you think is best. You handle it. You can handle it now. You can handle it later. You can handle it after I'm dead. You take it. You're going to have to take care of it. It's your problem. And when we do that, when we give things back to him, we honor him. Because it's a way that we are expressing trust and thinking of him rightly. And we are constantly unloading our burdens on him and saying, it's your problem. I'll do, I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'll, I'll obey whatever you want me to do. I'll say what you want me to say. I'll give what you want me to give. I'm not checking out, but the responsibility is yours. And when we do that, we honor him. So, there's no need to despair. In every situation, in every conflict, no matter what the future holds, we have a good and wise and powerful God who has it in hand. And he's worthy of our trust and confidence. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we need help to trust you. And we pray that you would teach us to do so. We pray that when we learn to trust you and put our confidence in you, that you would give us rest, that you would help us to wait on you when it seems like uh, you're late in coming or we're not sure why you're not acting when it seems like you should. We pray that you would teach us to put our trust and hope and confidence in you and that we would give you the full responsibility that you have because you're a good God and when we follow you, our burdens are actually light. We pray that you would teach us these things in your name. Amen.